All right, take your Bible and open with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to continue in our study working through this letter. Uh, Paul's written this letter to the church there in Philippi, and he's telling them over and over and over again, not only does he have joy, but they should have joy as well. And so we're just looking at this idea of rejoicing, finding joy in Christ and in his work. Uh, this weekend is, is pivotal weekend for sp- sports enthusiasts, especially basketball enthusiasts. You know, March, March Madness is, is underway. Conference championships has been happening this past week. They will finish up, the last remaining ones will finish up today with their championship games, and things are getting crazy. Uh, it's, been getting, it's, been getting, it's been getting maddening, as they call it, uh, especially these last few days as some of the teams like Duke and uh, UVA and I heard VCU this morning, some of these teams have had to pull out of their conference tournaments and quite possibly could miss the NCAA tournament as well, all because of a COVID positive test on their team or somehow uh, connected to their team. So it's happening on the big scale. It's happening on some smaller levels as well with smaller schools. And and, uh, it's going to be interesting this afternoon as they come out with the brackets and who's in and who's not and where everybody's going to be situated in the tournament. When you think about what's been happening this year in the area of sports, this particular, uh, it's been difficult for teams. Uh, I'm hearing some people and and broadcasters watching a lot of basketball the last couple of days and and them talking about what teams have had to do as far as protocol to keep themselves on the court. And so some schools have actually rented out hotel rooms, and so they're completely isolating their players and their staff, no interaction with anyone else. Others are confining them to the athletic dorms, and so they have limited to no access with people outside of the athletic department. In fact, I heard one commentator on a, on a game the other day say that uh, some of the freshmen who are coming to these schools have, have not had a college experience whatsoever. They're either off campus or they're completely isolated to the athletic uh, department and facilities. And so they really have no idea where buildings are on their campus. They wouldn't know how to get across campus if you drew them a map just because things are so locked down and so tight in order for them to stay healthy and to stay on the court. And so when you think about what they're enduring and how they're having to approach this, they are having to be single focused, having a single mind and strictly focusing on basketball with little to nothing else in their life. This commitment to the single mind could quite possibly mean the difference of whether or not they make the tournament and definitely the difference between seeing their dreams fulfilled and making a run at and for a national championship. So single-mindedness is what we're seeing in basketball. Here in Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul also possesses this single mind. Uh, Rather than being disillusioned, rather than being distracted uh, by circumstances and critics and all of the things that are coming at him, Paul tells us and, and shows us here how he looked at the obstacles and saw them as opportunities, opportunities for the gospel to advance. So in the face of his difficulties, he could literally and honestly say, in this I rejoice. In this I also rejoice. In that, what's happening to my life, I take joy. I rejoice in it. I understand that it's not necessarily an obstacle that cannot be overcome. It's better yet an opportunity 
to be used for God's glory. And so he found joy in knowing Christ. He found joy in being known by Christ. And he found joy in the fact that others, knowing they, were coming to Christ as well. And so Paul's joyful and hopeful response really can seem strange to us today. I mean, how can a person rejoice while in prison? How can you rejoice when your freedoms have been stripped from you? How can you rejoice when people who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the church, are the ones who's heaping criticism on you? That's counterintuitive to our way of thinking. It's counterintuitive to human thinking in general. Yet the apostle could rejoice because his mind was singularly focused on the Lord. He shows us that a life given over to Christ produces joy. Joy has nothing to do with your circumstances, has nothing to do with your critics, has nothing to do with the hardships in your life. It has everything to do with how you look at Jesus and find yourself in him. Look with me in Philippians chapter 1. Let's begin the latter part of verse 18 and read through verse 26. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it, is, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but, with that, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For, me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again." As Paul's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, just remember what's going on here. He is incarcerated, possibly under house arrest, maybe in a prison, but many people believe at this point he's in, under house arrest. Regardless, he's confined. He has no freedoms on his own. He's awaiting trial to stand before the emperor. Uh, he could be found guilty of being a traitor to the, the empire of Rome and executed, or he could be let free and return to normal living. His words here share some insights about his situation, but as he writes to the church of Philippi, he doesn't focus on his situation primarily. He focuses on the church, and he focuses on the advancement of the gospel. You see, when Paul does speak about his hardships, he connects them always back to the gospel. That's what we looked, about, looked at last week as he talks about the critics in his life, the people who are bringing uh, uh, false accusations, or even those who took the opportunity to preach the gospel, and to, to share about Jesus, used it to try to bring hardship, further hardship on Paul. And yet he rejoices because the gospel is being advanced. We discover here, through this first chapter of this letter to the, I uh, can't even talk this morning, this Philippian church, because they got one hour less sleep like you. We discover here that because of Paul's chains, Christ 
was known throughout the imperial guard. Think about that, man. The critics in his life, the, the, the circumstances in his life, all led to those who were guarding him, hearing about Jesus, hearing about why Paul was there preaching the gospel. Not only that, but because of Paul's critics, there in the city of Rome, the church began to preach, and the people in the city began to hear the gospel because it was being proclaimed boldly. Now as we move to this next passage, we learn that because of Paul's crisis, Christ was being magnified. Christ was being exalted. His body, his ministry, his reputation, Paul understood that none of those were his own. They are the gifts of the Lord. They're things that the Lord has given him. And and so they belong back to Jesus. Paul understood this reality. For him, he was living for Christ. I wonder, what do we live for? Anybody who knew Paul knew that that was what he lived for. That was who he lived for. He wasn't living for a big name. He wasn't living for a career. He wasn't living for a house. He wasn't living for anything monetarily or temporarily in this world. He lived for one thing, Jesus, and everyone knew that. Singularly focused. He was living for Christ. The deep desire of his life was to magnify Jesus through any and every circumstance of his life. When you think about Jesus being magnified, we know that Jesus is grand. We know that Jesus is exalted. We know that he's the creator of all things. We know that if he's the creator, then he has to be bigger than all things. And so how in the world could Paul or how in the world could you and I magnify someone who is so large and so profound and so magnificent? Warren Wiersbe, I came across this this past week, this idea poses this sort of question. Does Christ need to be magnified? I want you to think about that for a moment. Can a mere human being ever magnify the glorious Son of God? I was outside the other night, a couple nights ago, I believe, I was shutting things down. I had been in, uh, working in my shed, doing some stuff in the yard, so I went out there to make sure the doors were closed and lock the truck and do the things that we always do to make sure that things don't get lifted during the night. I don't know if bear may come through and steal some stuff or something like that. Um, and so I was out there, I looked up to the skies, and the, the stars were out. I mean, it was just bright and brilliant, saw the Big Dipper. It's just beautiful when you're out there in the night sky without a lot of light. You can just see the heavens open up. And when you look at the stars, you see that they are shining, that they're brilliant. You, you see all of that. But when you begin to step back and you understand what those things are up there in the sky, twinkling, they're not just little bitty night lights, they're gigantic blazing hot red stars many times greater in size than our own star in our solar system. They're thousands if not millions of light years away from us. They don't look like much with the naked eye, but if you take a telescope and you begin to look through that telescope, all of the brilliance, the richness, and the fullness of those stars begin to come alive. Obviously, the stars are much bigger than the telescope, and yet the telescope magnifies and brings them closer to us. You see, the believer's life and the believer's body are to be like a telescope that brings Jesus close to people, gives people better understanding, a better picture of who Jesus is. To the average person, Christ is a misty figure in history who lived centuries ago. 
As the lost watch the believer go through a crisis, they can see Jesus magnified and brought so much closer. You see, when Paul's facing these trials and facing these struggles, it's helping the church and the lost to see Jesus in a way perhaps they never saw him before. And the same is true for us today. When we go through our hardships and we go through our difficulties, we go through our uh, uh, suffering or whatever it is that the Lord allows into our life, it is God in a way allowing us to be a telescope to bring his glory into full view, into full clarity for others to see. So the Christian who possesses the single mind knows that Jesus is present here and now in the midst of the crisis. The telescope brings distance things closer. We can say the same thing of a microscope. It takes something that's extremely small and makes it look big. So the lost person does not see Jesus as being big or significant. Other people and other things may be far more important to that individual. But as that lost person watches the Christian go through crisis, go through hardship, that person ought to be able to see how big Jesus really is. Christian's body, then, is a lens that makes a little Christ look very big and a distant Christ come very near. In the midst of suffering and in spite of criticism, what we see in Paul was that he is living for Christ. Never tripped up, never uh, taken back, always pressing on, always searching for more, always longing for more, always pursuing Jesus, always leaning in. You see, the mantra of his life, he gives to us here in verse 21 when he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything in my life is for one single purpose. It is for Jesus and him alone. Can we say that today? Can we say that we're living for Christ? Paul magnified Jesus by joyfully living for Christ in all circumstances. He didn't just live for Jesus when it was easy. He didn't just live for Jesus when the crowds were coming and and showing up and and people were responding. He didn't just live for Jesus when the the leaders of the cities he would visit would, would be favorable toward him. No, he lived for Jesus in the good times, the bad times, the mountaintops, the valleys, and everywhere in between. Paul expresses this singleness of mind in four ways that I want to point out this morning, and let's get started. First way we see Paul expressing this singleness of mind or living for Christ, we see in this idea of confident assurance. Paul expresses confident assurance here. There was a confident assurance that God could and even would deliver Paul from the dire situation in which he found himself. Look what he says there in verse 19. He says, for I know. I I know, not I I think or I'm sure. Uh, You've probably seen that commercial that that came out at the Super Bowl. I forget the comedian that's in it, but it's hilarious. It's the whole idea of almost sure. I think it's a lending commercial. Uh, Chris, you may like that, that lending commercial thing. It's like, should we do this? Well, I don't know. it's, It's almost sure. I'm almost sure this is the right thing. And one of the funniest commercial, I think there's a couple different ones, is they're in an airplane about to jump out with a parachute. And he's like, I think this is almost a parachute. And it's this little lunchbox that's a backpack. And the little girl saying, this one's got a sandwich in it. Y'all aren't laughing at this. I think it's hilarious. Every time they come on, I'm just, just overwhelmed by how funny they are. Paul's not somewhat sure. He's completely convinced that Jesus has him taken care of. 
Look what he says. For I know. For, the conjunction here is an explanatory uh, conjunction. it's, It's showing us, indicating why Paul would continue to rejoice. He will do so because he knows that through the prayers of the saints, through the help of the Spirit of God, he will be delivered. The verb know here, oida, is the Greek term, speaks of a complete knowledge identified with the mind. It's, it's not a knowledge like gnosko that would come from experience, though a lot of our knowledge does come from experience, right? Uh, I mean, this is springtime. We know from experience, not just book knowledge, that in the springtime, the life or, or the, 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 the trees and the, uh, the grass and the flowers and everything's coming to life, Right? We know that from experience. It's happened every single spring that we've ever been alive. This is a different knowledge. He had experienced the faithfulness of God many times throughout his life, many times throughout his ministry, but his, and he's confident and he's assured that God's going to do that in his life. He understands and believes in God's power, but all of this is not just from experience. It began in his heart and it began in his mind. That's where faith always begins. Paul said in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The Bible tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Think with me through the story of Abraham. Here's a pagan living for idolatry, living for himself, living for the things of this world. And God comes and visits and says, Abram, I want you to get up and go. He didn't tell him where, he didn't tell him how far it was, he didn't tell him anything as far as details. He just says, I want you to get up and go. And Abraham got up and went. The Bible tells us that his belief was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't need to know through experience. He just trusted by faith in God. Paul's confident assurance here led him to seek out the Philippians' prayers and the help of the Spirit. They would provide all that he needed and bring about his deliverance. See, ultimately, Paul had in mind his eschatological, his end-time salvation. Paul knew the gospel. He, He understood salvation, that yes, because Jesus had changed his life there in Acts 9 on the Damascus Road, that he was safe and secure. He would be delivered. He would live eternally with Jesus in heaven. But he also has in mind here that God has the power, and if he so chooses, he can and quite possibly will deliver him from this predicament, from these circumstances. And so he's asking and petitioning for the help of the Spirit of God, trusting in that supply. The word supply here, the translated help, is an interesting word. We get our English word chorus from this. You say, how in the world would the word chorus come from a word such as this? Well, whenever a Greek city was going to put on a special festival, someone had to flip the bill for that. Someone had to make a donation so that singers and dancers could be hired and so they could celebrate whatever the festival was. And so this donation was always lavish. It was always large. And so the word came to mean to provide generously and lavishly. So by using this term, Paul here is showing that he was not depending on his dwindling resources. No, what he's telling us here is that he's confident, he's assured that in Christ, he would provide the generous resources of God for his deliverance. That would come through the help of the Spirit. It would come through the prayer of the saints. And all of this, regardless of if he lives or if he dies, he was confidently assured that Jesus 
was enough. There's a second thing, the second way he expressed this singleness of mind or living for Christ, and that is we see concern for finishing well. He's concerned about finishing well. You see, above all else, Paul, Paul's deepest desire was to be found faithful and to finish well. Look what he says, verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. He wanted to finish well. I wanted today. If we went back and just began to think through the, the number of people who called the name of Jesus in our lives and just began to chart them up, finished well or finishing well, finished poorly. How many of people we know would line up on either one of those two categories? There are many guys that I started ministry with 20 plus years ago, guys that I went to seminary with that aren't in ministry anymore because of decisions that they made that's disqualified them. Paul is deeply concerned about finishing well, not disqualifying himself. I think I've told you this story before, but uh, I think this helps us understand this. A, a relay race in track is, is, a, is a, a really neat thing to watch. It's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And so uh, if you've been around a while, you've probably heard this story. But my senior year in high school, I'm telling tell a lot of my stories from high school today, this weekend. Uh, but my senior year of high school, I went to a private Christian school, so obviously smaller than the, the large public schools. When we were at a track meet in Van Buren, Arkansas. We were running against the big schools, and uh, it was the 4 by 100 relay, and, and uh, my teammates, the first three guys, had got us out in a lead. So we're going against Springdale High, we're going against Van Buren, and we're going against uh, Northside and Southside from Fort Smith, these big schools with big football programs and fast guys. And, and so we're coming around the corner. It's the third leg. We're leading the pack. I'm running anchor. And I begin to, to take off. My teammate's coming. He says, stick. I put my arm back. I grab the baton like you're supposed to do. I take that first stride. And as I'm bringing my arm forward, trying to just kind of pump my arms and, and, and continue to lead. And so let's win this thing, get the ribbon and go home. I bring my arm back and I hit the baton against the back of my thigh. It comes flying out of my hand and shoots off the track. Hopes were dashed, right? Disqualified from the race. One bad mistake, one lack of discipline disqualified not just me, but my entire team from that particular race. Paul's driving concern here was that he would not be ashamed. His concern was not that he should be released from prison or, or that he would, if he were to be executed, that it was going to be some sort of painless situation. No, his driving concern was that he would do nothing of which that would bring shame on his life and shame on the message of the gospel. He did not want either to be disqualified. The single-mindedness of his life kept this in the forefront of his thoughts. He lived for Christ, verse 21 tells us. Paul, this meant that as long as he lived, everything about him was to point people to Jesus. Everything, everything about Paul's life was to point people to Jesus. I don't know if they brushed their teeth back then, but everything's everything. So let our teeth brushing point people to Jesus. I don't know why I'm saying that this morning. <laughs> Probably because I got a new toothbrush. I don't know, guys, if your wife does this like mine does. I walk in there and I didn't have my purple toothbrush that I've been using for the last few weeks. And I, there was a new purple toothbrush and a green one. 
And so I had to walk out to the living room where Kara was doing something with the girls earlier this morning, and I had the purple one. I was like, is this mine? I didn't want to put it in my mouth because she already put it in her mouth. You know, we kissed, but I brushed my teeth after. That's weird. She's not here. She's downstairs. I can say whatever I want this morning. So I walk up there with a purple toothbrush that's new, and I was like, is this mine? She says, no, yours is the green one. Oh, the green one. Uh, maybe that's why I was talking about brushing your teeth. But everything in our life ought to point people to Jesus. He's deeply concerned with finishing well. He's deeply concerned with being courageous and, 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 and going through whatever circumstance, whatever suffering the Lord would have for him. All that, also that his life, all for the purpose of his life, pointing people to Jesus. Paul joyfully expressed courage in the face of the suffering, which blessed the church. It brings us to a third thing. Come on, number three, right? Courage in the face of suffering. If you're an enemy of the cross, think about this. What do you do with Christians who possess a confident assurance in Jesus? Nothing was shaking this man. Uh, and so what do you do with a person like that? Do you kill him? Well, Paul would say, well, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, so take my life. Well, we're not going to kill you. We're going to throw you in prison. Well, uh, to live is Christ, and so I'm just going to live for Christ where I'm at, whatever circumstances are in my life. I'm just going to live for Jesus. What do you do with a person like that? You can't hush them up. I mean, think about what happens in Acts chapter 4. Pentecost has just happened. Peter and John, uh, um, they're on their way to the temple they, to, to, to pray and to seek the Lord. A man's out there who's lame. He's begging for alms. And they say, I don't have anything to give you. But in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And the man's healed. They're put into jail. They're jailed by the, uh, the temple guards. The next day they come in there, the Pharisees do, and say, uh, we're going to release you, but never speak in the name of Jesus. And they're like... Whether it's right to believe God or not, you be the judge, but we cannot help to speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. So you can't hush people like that up. They love Jesus too much to be hushed. The gospel is too central to their lives. And so Paul does not have the luxury or authority of choosing the course of his life, and neither do you or I. You don't have the luxury or the authority to say, I want my life to look like this. Remember last week, I kind of gave some illustration of that. I was like, like you, I had my whole life and career plan. I'm going to graduate with this degree at this point. I'm going to do this uh, level of, uh, of objectives at this point in my life and ministry. And then I'm going to move on to this. And then I'm going to do this. We don't have the authority or pleasure of setting the course of our lives outside of being committed to live for Jesus. And so for Paul, he didn't have any say over whether he was going to be in jail. He didn't have any say over whether he was going to lose his life. He didn't have any say over whether he was going to have freedom to go and to travel and to preach as he so choose. And so for him, neither life or death nor confinement or freedom were his to choose. And yet suppose he could choose, what would he choose? Paul tells us here, I don't know. For me to die is better. For me to die means the release from the struggle of this life. It means that I get to see Jesus not just through the eyes of faith, but through the physical ability to see him. And that's far better. 
And so that seems to be what he would want to choose, and yet he's also torn. He, he begins to talk in the, in the following verses to say, but for me to stay, it's better for the church. It's better for the, you who are in Philippi because I can encourage you. I can admonish you. I can come alongside you and build you up and, and help you to grow and to mature in your faith. He wanted to be courageous in the face of suffering. He wanted to be single-focused and not disqualify himself. See, one of the things that we desperately need in the church today, I believe, is courage. We have too many Christians who are timid and weak. Too many Christians who are afraid to live out their faith because of what someone might say. Here's what I've come to know uh, to be true. Is that most of the time people don't really care as much about your faith and what you may say as much as you think they care about it. Or, Or let me say it a different way. They're not opposed to it as much as you think they are. And yet we, in our weakness, won't even open our mouth to tell people that we're a follower of Jesus. I'm not telling you to go get a bunch of Christian t-shirts that have goofy 90s slogans on them. Turn or burn. I'm not telling you to go do that. I I wore those things in student ministry 25 years ago. We just need to have some backbone and some courage as Christians to say, you know what? My, My allegiance is to Jesus and to no one else. So I don't care if my faith offends you. Now, you got to counter that and balance that with tactfulness and love and gentleness and kindness and all of the aspects that come with the fruit of the Spirit. But let's never shrink back in fear, worried about how someone may perceive us and think about us. Instead, let's be courageous, even in the face of suffering. There's a fourth way he expressed this singleness of mind. And that is, we see his commitment to the church. Courage is courageous. Amen? Anytime you're around a person who has courage and has boldness, it begins to rub off on you. I think that's what we were seeing last week in the passage that we were in, that that because of his circumstances and what Paul was enduring there and how people were hearing that he was remaining faithful, that the church was emboldened to preach. It was emboldened to share. It was emboldened to live out the gospel where they were. And so Paul was saying, I rejoice in my circumstances because they've seen my courage and how God has enabled me to do this. And so now the church is coming alongside and they're courageous and they're emboldened to do the work of the gospel. And so through all of this, we see Paul's commitment to the church. One of the more striking things about all of this is that we discover how deeply Paul's evaluation of his own situation is tied to the well-being and the development of this church. He was concerned about the Philippian situation and their future rather than his own. Always came back to the church. He was convinced that God would make a way for him to remain and to return to the Philippian believers in order to ensure their growth. That's what he lays out there in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. Did he know that for sure? No, he didn't have absolute knowledge, but he was convinced. The Lord had laid that upon his heart, that that was going to be his future, that he would be released, that he would be able to continue to deepen and to mature this fellowship of believers, his hope for them, his his hope for his own immediate future was not about himself, it was rather about the church. He wanted to see them grow and 
deepen their walk. And so what we see here is a lesson that we need to learn. Uh, We need to learn here how the church and our commitment to it ought to be front and center of how we view decisions that we make. You see, as Christians, uh, let's let's put those who hear and believe the gospel we preach at the center of our principled self-denial. As we think about what, how, what and how we can deny ourselves, we want to do that so it blesses and benefits others. It blesses and benefits the church. Often we're tempted to think through alternatives by considering what seems best for us personally. Think about a job promotion, a job relocation. How many times have we thought through that and we're only looking at it through the lens of finances. Man, this is a great opportunity. You know, it's 45000 more a year. The benefits are, are better. It's, man, it's in a great location in the country. They have great schools there. I think our kids will really connect, and, and, and that'd be good. And it seems like a great move. It's not a lateral move. It's definitely an up move, and I think we should do this. Makes sense, right? Isn't that how we typically look at a job promotion or a job relocation? What if we began to look at it and say, you know what, this looks good on paper, but what's it going to do to my local church if I leave? What's my commitment to them? What holes is it going to leave there? I'm not telling you you can't ever leave Red Lane. <laughs> I'm just saying we ought to look at that. What's it going to do? Um, it's funny I'm celebrating, I'm in my six years, so I'll celebrate six years uh, this, later this year, being the pastor here, and I've, more and more, I get people asking me, like, so how long are you going to stay? I'm like, I plan to stay as long as the Lord will leave me, which means retirement, you know, 85, 90 years old, because <laughs> um, I really can't see myself doing anything else. I love fishing and hunting, but I think I'd get bored if I did that every day, all day long. I know it sounds counterintuitive, Harrison, but... Um, <laughs> But I'm getting this question more and more, and so I'm just wondering, am I supposed to know something that you guys know that I don't know? Uh, and, and so, especially, you know, we've been in this construction renovation stuff for, golly, three, four years now, and uh, there's been a couple opportunities where uh, people come and say, hey, I'd love to recommend you to this church. Great church, great location, great city, everything's growing, perfect for you. Here's the thing that always comes in my mind, there's not a oh, there's no way in the world I could leave now, even if I wanted to. Why? Because I've got this church moving in a certain direction and financially tied to something that if I left, it, obviously God's bigger than me and the church is bigger than me, but I feel obligated to Red Lane to stay here. Now, I want to stay here. I have no desire ever to leave. So you're stuck with me till you leave the church or I die, one of the two, which you might kill me. I don't know. <laughs> For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. <laughs> Commitment to the church. I don't know why I've been so transparent the last two Sundays. I need to be careful. Um, think about your illness. And no one wants to get a, a doctor's report that says, you know what, you got cancer. No one wants that. A couple years ago when Kara was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, that was not something that we wanted. It was a minor cancer. It was easily treated and maintained now through medication and all that stuff. But no one wants to get that report. It's scary. I remember uh, I would go in there and, and, and Kara's going through all this scenario of, of 
what could happen. And, and any time you go through a diagnosis like that, that's what you do. I thought it was crazy, but I wasn't going through it personally. I was an observer, though, a husband. So we understand that. But when you think about what's going on in your life, whatever the situation may be, good, bad, or somewhere in the middle, we have to, as believers, understand and rest, have confident assurance in the fact that we are God's children, beloved children of God, and nothing touches your life that he hasn't first signed off on. You you think of the the, the story of Job, Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. The devil comes strutting before the Lord, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? The devil didn't come up there and say, hey, I I want to just destroy this guy's life. No, God says, here's Job, Satan. I want you to take him down. And through all of that, God got glory because he empowered and enabled Job to remain faithful. He also did something in Job's own life to grow him even more deeply in his faith than he was before. So God is in control of whatever situation. So when we think about what we're facing, what we're experiencing, we need to understand that God is using that in your life for the church to strengthen the church. Paul had a commitment to the local church. He was not going to be removed from that commitment regardless of what he had to endure. He was there loving, praying, developing, preaching, teaching, admonishing, seeking to grow the church. Are we committed to the church like that? Or is church for us, because we're Americans, a place to attend and a place to to go home from. And our new members stuff, man, I'm way over time. Four minutes over time. And our new members curriculum, there's one of our lessons that we do, and it's talking about the priority of the church. And, and um, I share in that curriculum this idea of the movie theater mentality. Uh, if you can remember what a movie theater is, it's that thing that we used to go to that showed these, these movies on this big, huge screen, and there's like two, 300 chairs, usually in the theater seating, and they have popcorn and hot dogs and sodas, and it's really fun. You never want to turn the light on in a theater because you don't want to know what's underneath your seat, but because it's dark, it's fine, all right? That's what a movie theater is. And so when you come to a movie theater, you sit down for two and a half, three hours, depending on how long the the trailers are before it, and you watch this wonderful movie, and you're there with all these people, and you're laughing, and you're, you're cutting up, and you're crying, or you know, what all the emotions that need to be involved in the movie, you, you share them together, but you don't really talk to each other, um, and then when it's over, you all get up and you leave. Unfortunately, that's what happens on a lot of Sundays in a lot of churches. It's because we're not committed to one another. We're committed to a program. We're committed to checking something off of our list. Paul was never committed to the church like that. He was singularly focused on Jesus and his bride. Later today, the NCAA selection committee is going to reveal who's in the tournament, that national tournament we love to watch. We call it the big dance. It's going to get underway in a couple days and The two teams that will be able to put it all together and play for the national championship on Monday, April 5th, will be there because they have talent, because they have good coaching, yes. But there's going to be another aspect that will help them and work to their advantage, and that is their singular focus on how they're 
controlling their team and doing everything they can to keep them from contracting the COVID-19 virus. And so if they can do all of that, they're going to be able to get to Indianapolis, play their games, win and move on through the different levels and come to that national championship game and give it all that they have and one team will take home the coveted trophy. It's going to take singleness of mind. And the same is true for us as believers. See, rather than being disillusioned by our circumstances, distracted by our critics, today may we view these as opportunities for the gospel's advancement. In the face of difficulties like Paul, let's declare that in this we rejoice. Not rejoicing because we're experiencing it, but in it. The fact that God is using it, we rejoice because it renowns to his glory. Let's find joy in knowing Jesus, being known by Jesus, and, and rejoice in the fact that others are coming to know Jesus as well. This is what living for Christ looks like. And you can't live for Christ if you don't first know Christ. And so this morning, as we move into a time of invitation, every one of us need to be reminded that the Bible gives us good news. The Bible tells us that you've been made by God, you've been made for God. He desires to be in relationship with you. Tells us some bad news, and that is the fact that your sin has separated you from God. It's broken your life. You are in shambles. You're under the just wrath of a holy God. But the best news of the Word of God is this, is that God himself came. In the form of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, and he paid the penalty for your sin. And if you'll today to simply say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, forgive me, cleanse me, and save me, the Bible tells us he will. For us as believers, if we will lean into him, put him on the mantle of our life and say, I am living for nothing else, you will see him do things in your life you've never imagine and it will it will reverberate out into every aspect of your life your family your friends your your social interactions your church and we'll all be better for it so this morning are you living for christ